Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 92, Apollo 10. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists and engineers and astronauts and lots of other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today we're taking another look into NASA's past on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 10. When President Kennedy set a goal for America to land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade, there was less than nine years left in the 1960s, so NASA had to move efficiently. The first manned Apollo flight didn't happen until October of 1968, and it didn't leave Earth orbit. When Apollo 8 circled the moon that December, there was only one year left to meet the president's challenge. The first test of the lunar module in Earth orbit came in March 1969, and then on May 18th, they launched Apollo 10, the final dress rehearsal for the moon landing, which of course came in late July. Apollo 10 showed NASA what it had done right in its effort to meet the president's deadline, and what it needed to refine to finish the job. And it provides lessons for today's NASA as it works under a new challenge from the administration to get back to the moon in a few short years. That was the discussion by a select panel of experts here at the Johnson Space Center a few weeks ago, which we packaged up for your enjoyment forthwith. To talk about that Apollo mission of 50 years ago, you're about to hear from General Tom Stafford, the mission commander and the only surviving member of that crew. John Young and Gene Cernan walked on the moon later, on Apollos 16 and 17, respectively. While Stafford commanded the Apollo half of the Apollo-Soyuz test project in 1975. He's joined on the panel by Bernie Rosenbaum, who worked as a propulsion engineer during the Apollo era, by Laura Kearney, the deputy manager of the Gateway Program Office here at JSC. They're the folks developing a spaceport to enable future lunar surface missions and missions to Mars. And by NASA astronaut Randy Bresnik, a veteran of two space flights, including a five-month tour of duty to the International Space Station on Expeditions 52 and 53. The panel was hosted by NASA's Annette Hasbrook, a former flight director during the Space Shuttle and Space Station era, who then served as chief of the Space Flight Training Office at JSC before moving into her current job as assistant manager for program integration for the Orion program, which is developing America's first deep space crew vehicle. As we listen in, you'll hear her asking the panel members to talk about what they each see as the lessons of Apollo 10. So, here we go. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circle the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. To set us up, I'd like to set the environment for the panel. The Apollo 10 mission was a pivotal mission in the history of human spaceflight, and it was the first flight of a complete crewed Apollo spacecraft to operate around the moon. The mission objectives included a scheduled eight-hour lunar orbit of the separated lunar module and descent to about nine miles off the moon's surface before ascending for rendezvous and docking with the command and service module in about a 70-mile circular lunar orbit. Because of the success of Apollo 10 in late May 1969, humanity landed on the moon less than two months later on July 20, 1969. 
The reason we're here today is to reflect on the lessons and legacies of the Apollo 10 mission, to take a moment to note that we all have aerospace jobs that only exist because we stand on the shoulders of the giants on this stage and in the audience today, and to recognize how these lessons can assist our future plans to go forward to the moon and on to Mars. But first off, we need General Stafford to give us a brief synopsis of how this whole program started and what the strategies were used to make sure it funded, was funded, General. All right, you can hear me all right? Good. Well, I want to thank all the people here, the Snoopy Award winners, and also the Schultz family for what uh, Charles Schultz did to Snoopy. And uh, the, uh, we named the in fact, I was the one that chose the name Snoopy, and then Cernan said, yes, yeah, we'll go down and snoop around the moon. But, uh, and then naturally, Snoopy, we had to have a, the name of the other spacecraft, so Charlie Brown was a natural. But let me take you back to how everything got started. Why did we have Apollo? The, uh, uh, the new president we had there in 1960, election Kennedy, you know, wanted to do new and forward-looking things. But it goes back before that to Sputnik. And uh, the Senate Majority Leader was Lyndon Johnson from Texas. And when the Soviets orbited Sputnik, he really came on hard on Eisenhower, Nixon's vice president, as we let the Soviets get way ahead of us. And so there's a big push in science and technology throughout the United States, the universities, to go, you know, really get with the science. And uh, also it started the ballistic missile race. And the Air Force had General Schriever heading our efforts, who was a, a giant. He's like Sergei Korolev was to the uh, Soviet Union at that time. And uh, so things were up and running, but also President Johnson, the, and then Senate Majority Leader, put through a bill calling for a National Space Council that could be activated and deactivated by the president. And the vice president would be the chairman of it. Well, Eisenhower, for some reason, thought it would jeopardize his uh, position, and so he never activated it. But Lyndon Johnson was a real pusher. He kept going and pushing on it. Then he was vice president after the election, and the first thing President Kennedy did was to activate the National Space Council with Lyndon Johnson as a head of it. And it was like a fast moving freight train down the track with Johnson there, believe me. And uh, so then the next item that occurred was when Yuri uh, Gagarin on April the 12th, 1961, did one orbit around the moon. And Johnson and Kennedy saw the great accolades of the world through the Soviet Union and Yuri Gagarin. And then Following that, on May the 5th, Alan Shepard did a little suborbital flight on a redstone-mercury combination. He went 215 miles downrange, a little over 100 miles in altitude. So right within three days after that, President Kennedy went to Vice President Johnson and said, Mr. Vice President, I want an answer in two and two and a half weeks what this country can do that will put us ahead of the Soviet Union is very meaningful. It will show accomplishments that this nation leads the world. It'll put us ahead technically, economically, and challenge us. And Lyndon Johnson was no shrink in violence. He said, yes, Mr. <laughs> President, I'll do that. 
he put together a committee that had Robert Gilruth, first director of the center, uh, Werner von Braun, director at Marshall, uh, Abe Silverstein from the director of Ames, Max Viget, who designed our Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and the space shuttle, this group. And so in two and a half weeks, uh, Lyndon Johnson came back to President Kennedy and said, Mr. President, it's like there's three types of what we've determined. Number one, there is no way we can beat the Soviet Union in a free return trajectory around the moon. In other words, a highly elliptical orbit will go around the moon and come back with a very little maneuvering. And then they can say the Soviet Union has been to the moon. They flew around it. Then the average person in France or Japan or China, they wouldn't know the difference. The Soviets have been to the moon. There's no way we can beat them. And that's exactly what the Soviets started to do with their Zon program. It was a Soyuz without the orbital ball on the front on top of a proton rocket. Number two, we think there's only a 50-50 chance that we can equal them or maybe beat them on orbiting the moon. But number three, if we go and land on the moon and return to the Earth, that will definitely be ahead of the Soviet Union. It'll be bigger, more expensive. It'll put us way ahead technically. And right away, Kennedy thought for a couple of minutes, said, we'll do that. Now that took courage because the launch success out of the Cape was about 40%. In other words, we had about 60% failure of our boosters. So, so the next, well, also he was very smart politically. That evening he called in the leaders of the, of the Congress like Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, Albert Thomas, the Speaker of Appropriations, who happened to be from Houston, uh, Carl Albert, the whip from Oklahoma, Senator Kerr from Appropriations from Oklahoma. He called in the kingmakers. So the skids were greased with those leaders. And then the next day he had the joint session of the Congress and told the Congress that before this decade is out, we will land a man on the moon and safely return. So that is what started Apollo. So we had to go. The next question is, how do we go to the moon? Now that became a big fight between Johnson Space, well then the Manned Space Flight Center and Marshall. The, uh, what Dr. Gilruth wanted was this giant booster. We've all seen the Saturn V here. Weighs six and a quarter million pounds, fully loaded. But this thing would be, about 14 million pounds. He'd, he'd go and drop off stages, land direct, and I don't know how it would be so big, how the people would get out, maybe rappel down, <laughs> or have some elevator, and then take off dropping stages and come back. Von Braun had a different idea. He wanted to take two boosters, probably one and a half the size of a Saturn V, launch one, launch a second, rendezvous in orbit, even though nobody had done a rendezvous, and then leave, and again, dropping off stages, land direct, and come back, dropping off stages direct. There was a top engineer from Langley Research Center named John Hubel and his team. They said, no, the way to go is go do a lunar orbit rendezvous. And he kept writing papers. Fortunately, the deputy <coughs> administrator of NASA, Dr. Robert Siemens, who had been the former Dean of Aeronautics and Astronautics at MIT, 
He's a very technical man, and he understood it. Uh, but this is the way to go. It would be faster, it would be less cost, it would be safer, you could do it quicker. So anyway, it was finally 14 months after President Kennedy said go. In July 1962, it was decided, it announced to the world, the way that we will go to the moon is using a lunar orbit rendezvous. And so from that, that was, that was the decision. I was very fortunate. I joined in the second group of astronauts that came on board about two months after that. And so we had to decide we need to train the, we need to demonstrate this. So how do we demonstrate it? So that we started the Gemini program after the Apollo. So, and the biggest booster we had was the Titan II booster. ICE is an intercontinental ballistic missile. And it had the Mark VI nine megaton warhead. I don't know if any of you know what nine megatons is. That's nine million tons of TNT. Or if you put it in pounds, remember nine is 10 megatons is nine times 10 to the six. There's 2,000 pounds to a ton. So two times 10 to the third multiplied out. It had a warhead. It had 18 billion pounds of TNT. It was it was a big warhead. Wow. And uh, so we took off the nine megaton warhead and put on an 18 and a half foot, 8,000 pound Gemini. And Gemini was the first spacecraft that could maneuver in orbit, could change its orbit. Mercury could only change its attitude that it had three little solid rockets in order to give it an impulse retrograde of about 320 seconds and that would bring it down. But in Gemini, we could raise and lower altitude, change planes to some extent, and do all types of maneuvers. So we know from history now that the Gemini put us way ahead of the Soviet Union in our, our total sequence. And from that, I was very fortunate to be assigned with Wally Sherrod to demonstrate the first rendezvous in space. Uh, but during this period of time, a great team was put together. We were very fortunate to have Dr. Von Braun and about 250 of his German people from Pinamundi, and he developed a great team there at Huntsville. Uh, here we had Dr. Gilruth, and he, he brought in some great engineers like uh, from all over Chris Craft. We had and there's so many people like this gentleman, and uh, you know uh, to meet that goal, it was a 70 or 80 hour work week. In fact, 40 hours was a vacation, <laughs> and. Uh, so we, we started like that, and, but also one of the keys, we brought in General Sam Phillips. He was a two-star then, but he had managed the B-52 program. And then General Schriever had recruited him, and he was a program manager for the Minuteman missile. Was our, our, I mean, he put in the ground a thousand Minuteman missiles. He started the program, and he was brilliant. He was a fighter pilot in World War II, and P-38s, had dogfights with Messerschmitt 109s, ME-190s, lots of 88 millimeter flak around him. And he was a veteran, but he had a lot of common sense. And personality-wise, we hit it off pretty good, so I had a great working relationship with uh, General Phillips. I want to relay him the way he thought. He told me, when you look at a problem, you use common sense but also you have to think out of the box. 
And a good example was the Minuteman silos, you know, were sprinkled around out fields. They were unattended. You'd have a launch control center with 10 silos miles apart around. And, but we had to be sure they were secure. Boeing was the prime contractor. So they had written up a plan and they had a national security company well known to do their security. So they came up with a big book, had the thing all installed. This was it, certified. Well, you know in software you do IVNV, independent verification and validation. Well, General Phillips wanted to do an IVNV on the security of those Minuteman silos. We had a Minuteman one. So what did he do? Did he go to another security agency, another techno? Huh. He went to the Federal Bureau of Prisons and said, I want the best bank robbers you have that are in your prison. <laughs> and so he got eight convicts. He said he didn't want the ones that went to the bank with a firearm. He wanted the ones that broke in mechanically. So they rounded those people up. They went out to the silo with guards, turned them loose. Now remember, this was guaranteed. Nobody could get in there. And General Phillips told me within 30 or 45 minutes, those eight convicts were down all over that Minuteman silo. <laughs> in the umbilical feed rooms down at the flame trench, the whole thing. So that's it. So they pulled them out and uh, fixed all the deficiencies they could see. And then later he sent them back in. This time it took about three and a half hours to get down in the Minuteman silo. They fixed those. So that's how you think out of the box. And that always left an impression on me. And from then, for every program I was on, I was always thinking out of the box. And that later, as I'll explain, led to color TV. But I, I, I kind of used him and Von Braun as my model as how you manage programs. Wow, fantastic. So Bernie and Laura and Randy, can you briefly reflect on the importance of Apollo 10 and how that impacted your lives and how you believe that impacted humanity? Well, I think that's uh, it. Oh, oh, okay. It's on. It's on. Okay, I think as uh, General just mentioned here, each, each one was a stage, stepping stones on, on, on the previous one. And everyone, every, I mean, we, whoever set up those overall activities of Mercury, Gemini, and then Apollo, and the various stages of those, really thought the things through. Because each one added to the next one. No, no one was more important to the other. They were all important in series. So I think that's what it really does. It's, it really helped get to where we did on, on Apollo 11 then, very quickly. I, I would say, you know, building on what Bernie just said, Apollo in general uh, just inspired humanity, right? NASA was doing what was deemed impossible, in my opinion, on behalf of the world. Um, and it was, it was that series of missions that uh, was successful at the end of the day. But as you guys saw in the video, right, this mission did some really brave stuff, right? To, to get out there and have to change orbits, to descend, to land, to ch find that spacecraft that you had to rendezvous with. That was like really gutsy at the time. And they were brave enough to take that challenge and, and go for it regardless of the risks. So um, to me, that's a lot of the lesson learned that I'd like to see bring back into our culture is just that really bold, brave willingness to go do stuff that, um, you know, we haven't done before. And as a uh, test pilot uh, as well, 
what Apollo uh, 10 did and inspired me and was inspirational was the fact that these guys were the consummate test flight. They had a flight test plan they needed to go execute. They needed to get all the data, bring it back, so that the next step could happen, which was just two months later, the, the moon landing. And so imagine, you know, General Stafford and Gene Cernan and Snoopy, they've come 250,000 miles from Earth and all of a sudden now they are nine miles away from the surface. I mean, if, if the moon had grass, they could kind of reach the hand out the window and kind of touch the blades, they were that close. And, you know, to not go down to the surface, you know, certainly is challenging, but that discipline of the flight test, executing the flight test plan is certainly what is, you know, really uh, cognizant and, and a good reminder for, for all of us in executing our test plans. And as a, uh, as an aside, you know, I always thought, you know, there's all these stories in, about how test pilots push the envelope sometimes, maybe too much, um, and uh, how the, when uh, General Stafford and, and uh, Gino were, were in Snoopy, that uh, it must have been tempting for them to maybe just go a little farther than that 50,000 feet. And so the stories are, at least the ones that I've heard, that you know, the LEM was made too heavy so they couldn't do that, or there wasn't enough fuel put on board for them to go down to the bottom and come back up. So um, they would not be tempted to do that, so maybe General Stafford can fill us in on, on you know, what the reality was at that point. <laughs> so General Stafford, during the uh, Apollo 10 reentry, you and your crew were recognized by the Guinness Book of Records reaching the highest speed ever attained by man, so real speed demons, I've been told. Mach 37. It's an, the speed record that still stands today, and we may not exceed it until we uh, bring humans back from Mars. So thinking about that, what was the main difference between your training and your experience in reentry, and what advice do you have for enhancing future training for our astronauts as we go to the moon and then on to Mars? Well, on the reentry, uh, we knew it was also a test of the heat shield, even though we'd on one of the, the big Saturn V unmanned tests that we'd tested up close to that velocity. Uh, there was, really wasn't any difference between the simulator and what we did, but uh, we entered at nighttime over the South Pacific, and you know the Heat is a function of the square of the velocity. And uh, for example, Earth orbit coming in, the stagnation point on the leading edge, say the shuttle, and that was about 3,100 degrees. Well, at that speed we came in, the, our heat shield was about 6,400 degrees. And so it was, but we left a flame of trail, and you could see it from the ground. You came across America, Samoa, it was so bright, you could nearly read a newspaper night. And we landed, but we pulled about seven and a half G's for quite a while to get sub-circular. Uh, I know we're doing 36,000 feet per second, more than that. And then we kept, we were right in the middle of the fireball, rota you know, maneuvering to get the vectors matched to come in right to the aim point. And uh, we're down to 30,000 feet per second, then down to 28. We saw 25,000 feet per second. We knew we were coming in. We had a capture and coming on in. So really, it, it wasn't any different from a simulation. One of the real keys to our success was the simulation. We, we, had, we pioneered simulation in the space program here, starting with Mercury, which is really more of a procedure strain. The first real good procedure or simulator was the Gemini program. We had a digital simulator. And how we did the rendezvous. We also had a hybrid simulator up at McDonnell Aircraft. We worked out that. But uh, 
again, you, you work out backup charts and you always think how to do something better. How can you do it faster? And so, I don't know how many, 50 or 60 simulations we had for reentry, just time and time again. And failure modes, different thrusters failure. So, it wasn't, and it wasn't any different. So tra but, training like you fly is really a key, and we should carry that on going the into the future. And, and it was integrated with the Mission Control Center here and worked out super. Awesome. Bernie, talk a little bit about the design challenges on a, of the Apollo 10 spacecraft and things that impacted engineering and testing and uh, possible impacts that could have happened and what you all did thinking about that. Well, I mean, Apollo 10 was no more unique than, than all the other systems that we developed. Uh, I worked in the reaction control group, which was responsible for the attitude control and, and the Ohm's maneuvering systems on both Gemini and Apollo. And uh, when we first started on that, the technology status was really, really low. We didn't realize how serious the problems were. Uh, we used two propellants uh, that were hypergolic. And these propellants, that as soon as, you, as soon as they make contact with each other, they react. And at ambient temperatures, you get them together, and in less than milliseconds, you have a fire. So they were, that was really great. <laughs> the problem, though, was uh, in the flame temperature, that stuff was about 5,500 degrees. So you had to use special materials to avoid the stuff literally melting away. And we still couldn't reach those things. So we used a lot of film cooling on the, on the walls to keep them cool. And uh, the commandants, or the um, Gemini and command module used ablative engines, which are engines that are cooled from the inside. They're basically, it's a fiberglass wrap that as the, as the heat soaks into them, you have gas leak inside, which provides a, a cooling to the, to the inner surface. The uh, limb and command module were radiation-cooled engines. And because of the high temperature requirements, we, those were made out of uh, molybdenum, which is a fairly brittle material. And that became a real problem for us. Uh, this, the real serious problem is these propellants, when you look at them in a vacuum environment, if you're making long pulses, the propellants come in and they react immediately because there's conditional propellants coming in and the thing lights up and you have a nice glowing chamber there in not too many seconds. But when we're doing attitude control, particularly like if they're trying to align for stars, you want real short pulses. And we have pulses down 13 milliseconds. And when you look at the, at the kinetics of what's going on, the first propellant's coming in, it's in a vacuum, so it flashes, cools, and slows down the reaction rate. And these two propellants, whenever they're mixed real poorly like that, it forms a material called hydrazine nitrate, which is something like TNT. It just accumulates in there. And uh, we had, I can't, can't tell you how many times we had blends and blow up. You'd, you'd make a series of short pulses, and then all at once it would just light up, and the whole thing go off like shrapnel. And solving that problem was our, was our biggest challenge, and it took us some years to do that. And uh, the way we ended up solving the problem was we had to put heaters, pretty good-sized heaters on the system to keep the, to keep the propellants from uh, getting too cold and accumulating in there. And the other thing is we come up with a system, which basically a, we called it a pre-cup. It was a small engine within the main engine, and it was such that the fluid dynamics, whenever they would, you'd op first open the valves, the fluid would go directly into the small chamber in the middle, which was a small rocket engine. It would start reacting, and then it would, the chamber was small enough that the pressure built up, and so it, it made a lot less of this accumulation of this explosive material. And then concurrently, the propellants coming around the main manifold comes out into the chamber, and the thing would go ahead and light. And so it, that, those two things together really solved the problem. And, 
here's a, a section drawing of the engine. I don't know if you folks can see from back there or not, but these are the two valves that brought it in. And here's this little engine in the middle we called the pre-cup. And that went, went a long way toward solving it. But we, we had tests that, that uh, we were worrying about that thing shattering. And so one of the things we did was I went up to uh, Lem to, to Bethpage and got a couple panels of windows. And we had a program with the Explosive Research Lab in, in Pittsburgh. And we set these windows up around it. And here's another chamber. This is a chamber we actually use for testing. It's just a stainless chamber. But you can see how it's all ballooned out here. This is one where we had an ignition delay in it. And when it went off, it just literally ballooned this out. So we use this in a, as an example to, of the type of energy that was stored there. So we made other test chambers like this. And we put in uh, TNT on some just tissue paper in there. And they tried various amounts of it on several stages to get this same type of deformation. And he said, OK, that's probably a pretty good calibration of it. And then we took a real chamber like this, put the same TNT mixture inside and detonated against the windows and the windows did not break. So that gave us confidence that we, we had that problem pretty well solved. Wow. So. That is truly amazing. And for kids who are growing up, you do get to blow things up when you're an engineer. So that's awesome. <laughs> Study hard in school. <laughs> so um, General Stafford and our Bernie, uh, during the Apollo 10, you know, we understand that the uh, launch trajectory was so precise that we only had to have one mid-course correction. So, and this was done in the time before what we call, you know, the heavy computing capabilities that we have today, the era before modern computing. So, what lessons should our Orion and Gateway teams learn from, from this for calculating trajectories as we go on to the Moon and Mars? Well, today with our computing efforts, uh, I think we have a down cold what we can do as far as going into Earth orbit. And then JPL has done such a fantastic job over the years on understanding the exact trajectory of the planets, what it takes to get there. You see the New Horizons has gone past Pluto and all that. So it's, I don't think we have any problem as far as the trajectory out there. The main thing is systems reliability. and the uh, protection from radiation. And I got involved. One thing I'd like to bring out is leadership starts at the top. And like President Kennedy said, we'll go to the moon. And that was followed through and uh, with, with Johnson. And then Nixon finally stopped it. But uh, it wasn't smooth all the way. After the tragic fire we had, there in January of 1967, uh, in the Senate, led by Walter Mondale, the senior senator from Minnesota, later the vice president to Jimmy Carter. He led a big fight to kill the Apollo program. He's going to take the money, said, and put it in education. And I got my first involvement in talking with both houses. And Jim Webb, who is probably our greatest administrator, sent uh, three of us. Uh, Wally Sherrill would be the commander of the first Apollo flight after the fire. We rearranged the crews. I was a backup commander, and Frank Borman was on the accident board. He sent us individually around, and we talked to the, the chairman of the key committees around. I won't use the word lobby. I'll use the word educate the good elected representatives of the United States people. But we really worked that, and of course, Lyndon Johnson had a lot of horsepower. He came in hard, so 
Uh, Mondale didn't stand a chance, but him and a small group of senators tried to kill Apollo. Well, they were swept aside, but that was the first thing. And then uh, uh, President Nixon started the space shuttle. And then we had Skylab come in between as a follow-on there. And uh, the uh, President Reagan started the space station under his thing. Uh, but uh, then President George W.H. Bush said uh, on the 20th anniversary of the first lunar landing, there we had a big event at the Air and Space Museum and a barbecue at the White House South Lawn, that after the, we'll complete the space station, had to be redesigned. But uh, after the turn of the century, we returned to the moon, he said this time to say, and then the second decade, perhaps an expedition or two to Mars. Well, that was great, except that two houses were the opposite party. And then when President Clinton came in, he right away he said, hey, that was Bush's program. It's not my program. Mission is dead. So we had the, the Space Exploration Initiative, and that's when I really got involved with a lot of volunteer work. I was asked by President Bush, Vice President Quayle, to head this study. It's called America at the Threshold. We had 11 months, I had two floors of people over in Crystal City. George Abbey was my deputy, who was a great center director here. George was somewhere out here. Thank you, George. And uh, excuse George. But we use, like in our design, the components out of the Saturn V uprated engines, but where the Saturn V would put 300,000 pounds to low Earth orbit, then 100,000 pounds after translunar injection on the way to the moon. This would put 550,000 pounds to low Earth orbit with the increased engines, nearly uh, 300,000 pounds on TLI or on out to Mars. But as soon as Clinton came in, he killed it. So if the president isn't behind it, you're not going to go anywhere. So for eight years, exploration was absolutely zero. In fact, I talked to Dan Golden, the administrator then said, we can't even talk about exploration. Well, after Clinton left, George W. Bush came in, and after about three years, he was tied up for the first three years with a conflict in Afghanistan, Iraq. So, but after three, three plus years, he said, kind of the same goal is followed, not to the same funding level, but we're going to go back to the moon on to Mars. So that started, so we had about uh, around five years of really going for exploration. And Mike Griffin became an administrator. Doug Cook, who a lot of you know, was here heading exploration, went there. He's associate administrator. And they had a booster not as big as what we outlined when George and I were running the synthesis group. If I, it had put around 410,000 pounds to low Earth orbit. It's still a hefty payload out there. And then Barack Obama comes in as president, and he didn't just cancel it like that. He had a study done, and the study didn't say cancel it, but it was done with some, with Obama and the Obamaites he had embedded in NASA around, and that got killed. So for really eight more years, there's 16 years we've had zero exploration. And now President Trump has set a goal. He reactivated the Space Council which is great with Vice President Prince in charge. So I'm not a Nostradamus. 
to say who will win the election in 2020. Where President Trump is reelected, we'll continue on. He set a goal for landing on the moon. He said boots. And he doesn't mean one left boot and one right boot. That's boots. He means more than one person <laughs> on the moon by 2024. So this center has its work cut out for us. And we got to do the right thing. We got to think out of the box. Let me make one more comment too. Um, you know, um, when I was assigned Apollo 10 to be the first lunar module out there, all we had had on Apollo 7 was a black and white fuzzy TV camera. We had it on eight, the first lunar orbit that George Lowe pushed to beat the Soviets, and nine, which was an Earth orbit with a spider and gumdrop, the first lunar module. So when I came off of the backup on the first Apollo flight, and after October, starting mid-November, I said, when are we going to have color TV? Well, NASA had a program that was uh, three, said in three or four years we will have a color TV. I said, baloney. I said a few other things that I'll not repeat since <laughs> we have a mixed audience. I said, we can do it. I said, we're better than that. We can do it a hell of a lot faster than that. So I talked to Chris Kraft and uh, talked to Sam, General Sam Phillips. I had a good relationship with him. So I want to really push this. So it shouldn't be that difficult. So we determined the Vidicon camera we needed was a low light level Vidicon. It was classified in Vietnam. So I called General Phillips. We got two of them declassified about that fast. There's, they had five lenses in France that had the dynamic range. I don't know why they were in France, but we got two of those. So we had that, but how do you get color? You know, the early TV sets, remember those big sets we had? They had, a, they had color guns, red, blue, yellow, the three basic colors. We didn't have them. And one of the groups said, hey, let's go back to the first TV set ever invented. It had a rotating color wheel of red, blue, and yellow. So we got a little actuator about this big off a Miniman missile driving a color wheel. So and basically between three and a half and four months, we developed this first color TV. And we put it on board Apollo 10 about a week before launch. Started running integrated tests with the control center, worked good. So we launched and then the first color TV you saw is when we exploded off the command module, came back in and docked with the lunar module to take it away from the third stage S4B. As we came into dock like that, you could see this thin aluminum cover on the top of the lunar module Snoopy. And the resolution of that TV was so high, you could see the rivets in that thin thing. And you could see it shake as we got the soft dock, then a hard dock, it really shake. And then we turned around and, but see, you had to think out of the box. So instead of three years plus, we did it in three and a half months. And we gotta have thinking like that if we're gonna to get to the moon in 2024. But one funny thing that came out, we're feeling pretty high. And uh, we were sending pictures of the Earth back and by the end of the day, the Earth was slightly bigger than a basketball. And so I was thinking kind of wise ass, so I said, I would say, I want you to relay to the president of the British Flat Earth Society in London. He's wrong. You can, you can see here, it's a beautiful round earth. It's round. So we went to sleep that night, put up the windows. 
Next morning, the earth looked smaller than a soccer ball, between a soccer ball and a grapefruit. And they were reading up the morning news, and the second article was from a, pretty, a, a message from the president of the British Flat Earth Society. He said he had a, a message for Colonel Stafford. He said, yes, saw a beautiful round picture of the earth. Yes, the earth is round, but it's a flat disk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So Randy, as we prepare to go forward to the moon and on to Mars, what can the employees here at JSC do to help prepare our crews and our control centers and our infrastructure for this new mission? Well, certainly uh, everybody needs to keep doing what they're doing. The dedication, the professionalism, the attention to detail that got us finishing up the flying of the space shuttle program, completion of the uh, assembly of the International Space Station, the, you know, 19 years now, continuous human presence in space, Everything we're doing it, is good. Now, to make the 2024 goal happen, though, we got to take that experience and transition it, and we can't keep doing business as usual. We need to figure out ways to be more efficient and do things more quickly. And so, you know, procurements, building of the spacecraft, testing of the spacecraft has to be done more quickly and more efficiently. And so we need everybody's good ideas on that because you guys are the experts on those particular things and you know where the improvements can be made. So the time for good ideas is not past. The time is now to bring those good ideas forward so we can make 2024 a reality. So General, um, when you and Gene entered the lunar module and prepared for the undocking maneuver, what was your level of confidence that that lunar module would operate and what was the calm between you and Mission Control like? Oh, our confidence, 100%. We'd been through the testing in the altitude chamber and also while it was being built in Long Island. So I didn't have any qualms at all about the thing would operate real good. The, uh, the, the only system you wonder about was a probe and drogue. We had three little prongs, you can see it in the museum, and that was what held the, uh, the drogue and over on the lunar module in the probe. And so when you dump the pressure, well, we had a little quality control problem on the Apollo command module. If any of you have taken engineering drawing, you look at a three dimensions, and, and when you look where you see a hole through a thing from a different view will be a dotted line. Well, we had a non-propulsive vent as a nut, so when John Young turned your vent to tunnel after we were in there, it wouldn't vent. So here we were hooked on five pounds per square inch over an area about this big, the tunnel, and it's held by three little probes. And we'd had a series of failures, a lot in tests of that, of that probe. And so we were hanging on by those three little things, and the lunar module started to twist a little bit. But mission control said we th it should work. So, okay, here we go. We undocked. We got a little push because we had five PSI over a big area. And so the main thing was coming back in. I sure hope those three little capture probes <laughs> would work. If not, we'd have to do a spacewalk, an EVA to get back into the command module, which would be a rather uh, tough task. But uh, that was the only systems problem. Great, awesome. So Laura, with the upcoming commercial crew flights and the first crewed flights of Orion, what lessons can we learn from our Apollo era employees on how to safely fly dynamic and daring missions? 
Well, let's see. So uh, I think there's probably several different aspects to that question. I mean, just from a hardware perspective, we take a lot of the lessons learned directly from Apollo. You can see the heritage in Orion's heat shield and the parachutes um, in several of the systems. We certainly took a lot of lessons learned, uh, like General Stafford said, from the Apollo 1 fire. We, we know how now to treat materials, um, what kind of environments are best from an oxygen and a partial pressure perspective. So just technically, we, we have certainly taken a lot of those lessons learned. Um, culturally, again, I think it's important that we kind of start thinking a little bit more like they did. You've heard both uh, Comrade and General Stafford talk about things like fighter pilot, uh, test pilot mentality, risk-taking mentality. Um, I think we have kind of gotten away from that a little bit and need to get kind of a little more back to the edgy, edgy way of the way explorers think, the guys that climb mountains and go to the South Pole, um, start thinking a little bit more like that. Um, I, I, you've heard General Stafford say several times leadership starts at the top. I can tell you from what I'm seeing, we certainly have a lot of support, not only from the White House, but down even to NASA headquarters. Um, they are really blue, blowing and moving and going to try and make all of this work. Um, we have taken um, a lot of the lessons learned. We, from a gateway perspective, and I know landers are going to be the same way, we are sitting on an incredibly diverse and talented workforce that can take the lessons learned from everything we have from Space Station, everything we have from Orion, everything we have from commercial crew, um, and be able to fold all of that into these lunar programs. Uh, we just need to harness all of that and and be efficient with how we go forward. So we do have a lot of teams working on trying to help us with what I think a lot of us would consider things like bureaucracy and red tape, and we're trying to um, kind of push that down and see how fast we can start to move. Uh, and again, I think that's a, a lesson learned from Apollo, again, is just the top-down leadership to try and make things um, possible for the workforce to be successful. Go ahead. Yeah, let me bring up a point. See, it's kind of a counter philosophy. Under the Obama administration, it was decided they would have commercial crew. And having been through such a great success we had, uh, I, I have a, a dim view of it. Because it's basically, here, we'll build a spacecraft and come and look at it. And I think the Orion is like we did Apollo, where Randy's out working with the spacecraft and not like this. In other words, everything NASA did in Gemini and Apollo, we bought from commercial companies, except we had NASA engineers like you, sir, and all this working right there with them, where now it's, under this commercial idea, it's different. And if you want an interesting mathematical exercise, you know, a fraction, a numerator over the denominator, go take a look at the dollars on the top what we're paying for a launch of commercial cargo divided by the pound and see what it is. And you go look at the shuttle. It was, the shuttle ran about $450 million a launch. It could carry 31,000 pounds. And you also had a plus, a crew of seven over here on the side. Just make a comparison. I think you'll find it interesting. All right. 
And speaking of Gemini, um, Bernie, during Gemini 8, they had a yaw ohms thruster that was fired erratically, and it was believed due to a short circuit in the wiring. So what were the lessons of Gemini 8 that you applied to the reaction control system in Apollo 10 and 11 to ensure mission success? Well, the problem on, on Gemini is that they switched the valves on the ground side. They went from the circuit breaker directly to the solenoid, back out of the solenoid, the ground wire going back, and the switch was down there. And somewhere in that section of wire, uh, either hose clamp was too tight or wire was crossed, but that was apparently made, it was a conscious decision because they had a real weight problem on Gemini, and they didn't want to have the extra wires in it. They had to, if they had put it on the other side, it was going to take additional weight. And that apparently was the reason why they had it that way. And that was changed on Apollo, so that was not there. Uh, how much more time do we have? Because there's a couple points I'd like to make that, hmm? Okay, just so I, I'd like to, like to talk about two other things. Oh, okay. Uh, what I want to do is, is talk about how people can empower, how, how you should feel empowered when you see something that's not quite right. Take the action and don't worry about the consequences of it. You're, you're out there trying to solve a problem. And I mean, cite an example that could have changed history. One of the fellows, our, our, response, our group was responsible for the power technics, the igniters. And one of the fellows who had, was working in the group had worked for the Navy for a while and knew the igniters that were being used on the lunar trainer for the, for the seat ejection seats. And he was suspicious of a problem one. So he went to Henry Pohl, who was director of our group. He went direct, that same afternoon, he went to Bob Gilruth directly. They told him the problem. Bob says, we are grounding the fleet until, we, until Bob certifies that we have good igniters. And I don't know how long it was grounded, but because I know the crew was fussing about it, they wouldn't be out there training for it. But shortly after that, Bob said, okay, they're all okay, Neil's in one, and Neil had to bail out because of a problem. And had that had a bad igniter on it, history would have been different. So the point is, when you feel there's a problem, take action. Don't wait for someone. Another example is that we, I got a call from somebody in the, in the program office saying that they just saw a design change come through where they changed the bolts on the, that hold the head on the hydraulic pumps from a standard bolt to a dry lube bolt. And if you have a dry lube bolt, then you need to change the torque spec. So I didn't think a whole lot about it. And she said, I want you to go up at ABEX, and it was an ABEX pump that was being built for the, solid, the SRB, not Orbiter. So I said, well, I don't think it's a pro we, don't, we have an issue with it because we're not changing ours out, but I said, I will go check it out. So I go up to ABEX, went up to the chief engineer's office, told the guy why, why I was there. He says, come on, we'll go back. We're, ter we're building pumps right now. And they had, and they rebuilt them every flight after they have to take them out of the water. And they, he says, they, we're taking them apart right now. So I, we walked back, and the guy had just literally pulled the top of the pump off. He took off the part, that, and it had an insert on it. They had real heavy-duty inserts, helical-type inserts in the aluminum, so that because, and there was a big keen cert, it was real square threads on it. And the thing had, was, I could look at the thing and I said, well, that thing is slightly above the surface. And long story short, I suspected we had the thing, they had sheared the inserts because they used the, the old torque, the Titan bolts, and they should have used a much, a much reduced torque. So I said to the chief engineer, I said, hey, it'd be interesting to slice that thing in half and see what it looks like inside. So we okay, we'll go down the lab, we do it, cut it in half. They made a photomicrograph. I sent it to Bud Kastner down here, who was one of the best metallurgists that I've ever met. And he looked at it, he sent it to his buddies at Marshall, which he should have, 
And about two hours later, I got a call from the director of engineering down here and saying, what the F are you doing up there? <laughs> he says, I just got a call from Marshall and you're there directing them to cut, up, cut apart our hardware. So he says, you're going to get some visitors tomorrow. So there was a whole team of Marshall folks come up in. And long story short, had we not found that problem, we could have had pumps being built and the heads come off on the SRB and potentially lose the vehicle. And about three months later, I get a letter from headquarters saying, hey, you know, you won an award, <laughs> a, Qu a Quasar Award, which is an award given to, to non-quality guys who solve a serious quality problem. And I had a 10K check with it, so I didn't mind that either. <laughs> but my point is, when you are suspicious of something, take action. Don't just say, oh, yeah, well, I don't worry about it. It's somebody else's problem. In fact, this is what I get back to on this commercial, the contract I call this commercial crew. And Apollo and Gemini, people like you could really make an input and bang, that would stop it. And you get to the problem and you fix it right then. Yeah. You direct the contractor. He salutes smartly. Yeah. And that's not the way the commercial crew is set up. There's a big difference, yes. Yep. Yeah. So it's really interesting, you know, it focuses on the safety and risk leadership. So in closing, I'd be interested in your thoughts, kind of what you think about how, how do we go forward and balance risk and uh, knowing that the space flight's inherently dangerous. So just a couple comments from each of you. Well, certainly if we learned anything from the uh, Apollo and Gemini effort, it's that they were singularly focused on the mission. That we had to get, you know, people to the moon and back safely by the end of the decade. And, you know, think about what we're doing now. We need to take that same focus. It, people can't be, you know, we've been so ensconced in our little rice bowls and our little projects and our little teams that we're working in and focused on those. We need to be thinking uh, about what requirements we have on the books that maybe don't apply or need to be modified and updated and challenge those old assumptions. We also need to be able to, you know, look at risk by swimming outside our swim lanes. You know, get outside of your your, your tunnel vision on your particular project. Know what's going on to left and right and think like the, the decision makers ahead of you so that all of us can be systems integrators rather than just the folks whose jobs are systems integration. Um, and then lastly, you know, I think we have to make smart risk decisions and and uh, not just take risk because um, we're going someplace new, but the fact that we are living and breathing the mission every day and that we feel that sense of urgency and we're only taking the risks that we have to take. And so if you're not going home every day feeling like, boy, I put in a full effort to try and, you know, not leave anything on the table or decisions that need to be made or needs to be done, that's what we need. And, and when Apollo and Gemini, you know, program happened and we went to the moon, they didn't know that they could do it. We thought we could but we didn't know that it could be done until we actually did it. We know it can be done now, so that should allow us to harness all this incredible you know, innovation and experience that we have to be able to go ahead and make this effort happen in just the five short years that we've got uh, to show that we can do it. Well, let's give a big round of applause to our panelists. Really fantastic conversation today. Pretty interesting discussion there. Thanks for hanging in. 
You can check out nasa.gov for more information about the Apollo 10 mission. And we hope that when you do, you won't be able not to notice much more stuff about the upcoming 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, the first landing of human beings on the moon. And to that end, we've gathered our own podcast episodes on all the Apollo topics in one spot on our page, at nasa.gov slash podcasts, where you can scroll down to Houston, we have a podcast, and click on the link to Apollo episodes. That leads to our Heroes Behind the Heroes series, to episodes on the science and history of the Apollo program, on the Apollo 1 fire, and the Apollo 8 mission that circled the moon, and more links to many more things Apollo. You can go online to keep up with all things NASA at nasa.gov. It would also be good for you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You will thank me. When you go to those sites, use the hashtag AskNASA to submit a question or suggest a topic for us. Please indicate that it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. When you go to nasa.gov slash podcast, you should check out all the other cool NASA podcasts that are there, like Welcome to the Rocket Ranch, JPL's On a Mission, NASA in Silicon Valley. They're all available at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. This Apollo 10 panel was recorded on April 25th, 2019. Thanks to Alex Perryman and the staging and presentations crew at JSC for their help in getting the recording. To Gary Jordan and Nora Moran for their part in the production. And to the Apollo 10 panel members, Tom Stafford, Bernie Rosenbaum, Laura Kearney, Randy Bresnick, and Annette Hasbrook. We'll be back next week.